Hi, everybody. I'm Alistair Stevens. Welcome to the fifth session in our Dear Mr. Potter Chamber of Secrets series. I'm going to start a little more gently this week, a little more slowly this week, primarily just to make sure that everything here is working properly, that we have no technical trouble. I really launched into it last week and was then made to pay for that rank hubris by a complete technical breakdown located in the microphone area. So hopefully this week everything is working. Hopefully you guys can all hear me. If you can shout out in the chat, the chat is already rocking tonight. We have Amy here from Texas, and we have Mary here from Georgia, Sean from D.C. We have Sharon from Virginia is here shouting out. We have Parker from Australia. We have Sophia from Norway joining us here. It is 1 a.m. in Norway, I am told. Thank you so much. That is some real dedication. Guys, thank you so much for joining me here, and everything is apparently working. Good. Now we can get into it, because we have a really interesting reading tonight in which we look at chapters 11 and 12. We're going to be discussing the Dueling Club, we're going to be discussing Polyjuice Potions, and of course we're going to hit our third major roadblock. We're going to find the third victim of whatever creature it is that has emerged from the Chamber of Secrets. As usual, you can ask questions here in the YouTube chat. If you're uh, watching live, you'll find that right alongside the video on the YouTube page. Or whether you're listening to this live or you're listening to this after the fact, you can tweet at me on Twitter using the hashtag SWDMP. And I will see those. And I see... Usagi is here, and Sue is here, and Kate is here, and Deborah is here, Sarah is here, though sadly her husband will not be joining us, for he is a muggle. Sarah, you have my sympathies there. Before we get into it tonight, we have to, of course, discuss the elephant in the room, or I guess it may not for you be an elephant. I'm sure that many of you, if not most of you, have been over to Pottermore.com and checked out your Patronuses. You have discovered which Patronus is really yours. I want you all to shout out in the chat. So that I can see, uh, so that I can see all the varied and, and wild animals. I have no idea how many different varieties of Patronus they have programmed into Pottermore, but it is apparently a lot. Uh, I took the test earlier this afternoon, and well, there's no way to really talk about this in more grandiose terms. I got a field mass. My Patronus is a field mass, which may seem a little underwhelming, but on reflection, I think perhaps there is no better Patronus for a Scotsman than a wee, sleekit, curin, timorous beastie. It does seem appropriate. Oh, we've seen... Oh, there's a Thestral out there? My goodness. Wild Rabbits, Luna Lovegood's Patronus 2, a Pheasant, that's a good one. A Dapple Grey Mare. Oh, but a Penguin of your own choosing. My goodness, I don't even know if they have Penguins in the in the Pottermore thing, but, you know, we can, we can make that work. A Tonkinese Cat, says Kate, and my husband is a Buzzard, which is perfect. A Badger, wow. So many things going on. Claire says that she got a lynx. That is very cool. Yeah. And Sean says, Thestral Patronuses would be terrifying. That, I think, is absolutely true. <laughs> it is. I mean, here's the thing. I am something of, of a tech nerd, of an internet nerd, and, and I am always impressed by... By websites, and, and it's almost demeaning to use that simple word to describe what they're doing at Pottermore, but I'm impressed with websites that can build a world, that can that can really customize a user experience. Pottermore is just beautiful. It's just stunning. I love the time and the effort that has been has been poured into it. So I do, I, I will admit, head over there. Though I haven't yet been sorted into my uh, into my American house. I'll have to do that at some point, too. Excellent. All right. Let's get into it with um, with a big 
topic, a big topic that isn't directly relevant to tonight's reading, but does kind of tie back to last week's reading and will, I think, open up a whole new avenue of discussion for us here in Dear Mr. Potter, because I received in the week a tweet from Mossy, at WriteMoss on Twitter, who said, OK, in caps, so you know that this is serious, OK, someone whose opinion I respect said there were vague anti-Semitism points in Harry Potter, brackets, goblin-based. What are your thoughts? Now, this is an interesting one. And as I said, though it isn't directly applicable to this week's reading, it does connect back to our discussions of Moaning Myrtle last week. And I've had a few uh, email back and forth correspondences over the course of the last week with, with a few listeners talking about my concerns about Moaning Myrtle and basically sharing those same concerns that, on the one hand, Myrtle is a stock fantasy figure. She fits the fantasy side of the story rather beautifully, but at the same time, she's still a teenage girl who was struggling with obvious depression and suicidal thoughts, suicidal impulses. Clearly, we made fun of that in last week's reading, which is the moment at which I became profoundly uncomfortable. Here's the thing. The stories that we tell, they don't spring from virgin soil. There is no act in the entire world of pure creativity. We are all, to a greater or lesser degree, prismatic. We are sponges, if you prefer. The stories that we tell are the product of absorbed culture, absorbed narrative that we we are exposed to from the moment that we are born. The stories that we tell, in turn, are necessarily filtered through that experience. Stories accrete around certain ideas. Certain ideas, certain relationships become conventions. They become almost narrative tropes. When they're codified, at least they turn into tropes. When they're exhausted, they turn into cliches. But these ideas are themselves powerful. Cliches, ultimately, I suppose, can be themselves subverted, can be reinvented, can be reborn. But all of the ideas that we pour into our stories come from somewhere. They are all a product of our experience, of our culture, of our society, of our travels and our readings and our every conversation. We are in part creative, yes, but also in part conduits for narrative. Telling stories is, after all, the most human thing that we can do. And sometimes there's a tension between that narrative construct, that convention, and our understanding of the real world. Myrtle is such an example. As a narrative convention, Myrtle works just fine. Myrtle can even be funny. But when that narrative convention clashes with our understanding of the real world, and as I said last week, perhaps my perspective on this is is a little skewed, perhaps I am a little overly sensitive as the father of two teenage girls, that clash can leave us feeling uncomfortable it can throw us out of the story. That is a real and viable response. The dissonance there can be troubling, and it can lead to uncomfortable conclusions about the fiction that we're studying. When we meet goblins, I have a rare pre-reading slide this week. When we meet goblins at the beginning of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, they are presented to us as formidable, yes, but ultimately trustworthy. Gringotts, said said Hagrid. They had reached a snowy white building that towered over the other little shops. Standing beside its burnished bronze doors, wearing a uniform of scarlet and gold, was... Yeah, that's a goblin, said Hagrid quietly as they walked up the white stone steps toward him. 
The goblin was about a head shorter than Harry. He had a swarthy, clever face, a pointed beard, and, Harry noticed, very long fingers and feet. He bowed as they walked inside. Now they were facing a second pair of doors, silver this time, with words engraved upon them. Enter, stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed, for those who take but do not earn must pay most dearly in their turn. So if you seek beneath our floors a treasure that was never yours, thief you have been warned, beware of finding more than treasure there. Like I said, you'd be mad to try and rob it, said Hagrid. So we're presented with goblins as a race apart, goblins as a culture, a structure apart, but they are clearly powerful, they are clearly stalwart, and they are clearly trustworthy. There is a reason that goblins are entrusted with gringots. Even looking at the first two paragraphs of the little, the little poem that is inscribed upon the door, Enter stranger, but take heed of what awaits the sin of greed. We are absolutely separating ourselves from any kind of, of acquisitive impulse. These goblins are not greedy. They are custodians. They are stalwart and forthright. By the time we get to the movie, though, that depiction has changed a little. Hagrid says when we meet the goblins in the movie, they're goblins, Harry. Clever as they come, but not the most friendly of beasts. Best stick close to me. And reframing the goblins as beasts does something very powerful. The visual representation, which you can see on your screen now, coupled with that description, gives us a perspective on goblins that isn't incompatible, strictly speaking, with the original, but is also imperfectly representative of that initial impulse, the version of goblins that we meet in the book. It's not too difficult to look on the depiction of goblins in the movie to consider their connection with banking and to come to some unpleasant conclusions about the inferences. The goblins of Gringotts, though, are written in the tradition of some of the oldest stories in the Western canon. Goblins as Greedy, amoral, deceitful figures of short stature and ugly appearance are as old as fairy tales themselves. Goblins are related to fairies. They coexist alongside fairies. They come from the same tradition, and depending on the version of the fairy tale that you're reading, you may encounter a fairy, an elf, a goblin. They are tricksters who are attracted to the bright and the shiny, who deliberately mislead and deceive human beings. The greed and the treachery of Rumpelstiltskin, who is explicitly described as a goblin in the first recorded text, in the Brothers Grimm version, comes from a narrative tradition that is at least centuries, and in some cases, millennia, older. Rowling's goblins, therefore, are absolutely a part of that tradition. That same tradition that gave us Rumpelstiltskin, that gave us leprechauns, that gave us gremlins, that gave us the goblins we find in World of Warcraft or Dungeons and Dragons, they don't deviate sufficiently from that tradition, in my opinion, to indicate any conscious or deliberate counterpoint. They don't, to me, speak to a deliberate anti-Semitism. Let me uh, kill that slide and come back to you. Because the fact that they don't represent to me an anti-Semitic 
agenda. The fact that they speak to this much older culture does not mean that there isn't a connection in our shared culture between the goblins of fairy tales and a flatly, toxically, aggressively anti-Semitic portrayal of, of Jewish populations. It doesn't mean that that association wasn't at some point intentional, wasn't at some point deliberate. And we must, this I think is the basic point, this is the foundational point, we must be thoughtful about the implications of the conventions that we use in our storytelling. We must be mindful of the associations embedded in our culture, as well, honestly, as the optics and the substance of modern storytelling in a transcultural age. We do, I believe, have a responsibility to interrogate and to explore our culture, particularly that culture which was absorbed by us in our naive, more simple, pre-adult years. Storytelling is a powerful tool of propaganda. And that doesn't mean that it's all bad, but it does mean that we must be called upon to question it. There is, though, enough active and deliberate prejudice and hate in the world targeted at Jewish populations and beyond that we needn't be troubled, I would say, by the goblins in Harry Potter. Is it a smart and engaging piece of world building? Is Gringotts, in many ways, one of the stronger creations in J.K. Rowling's first pass at the Wizarding World? I would say yes. Are there troubling and potentially unsettling connections that may be drawn, particularly from the text of the movie, to traditional anti-Semitic portrayals of Jews? Yes. Both of those things can be true. It can contain both ideas. It can contain 50 ideas. Fiction must be allowed to be complex. We have to acknowledge that it can contain contrary ideas and that we can react both positively and negatively to the same idea, that we can find something bewildering and lovely and precious and fragile, but also problematic, but also worthy of interrogation and discussion and exploration. That is what the adult analysis of fiction means, in part. We can't be allowed to simplify our experience and to collapse it down into one simple, single, unified response. So, I'm happy to say that I am flatly, broadly, completely unconvinced by the argument that J.K. Rowling or the Harry Potter novels in general are anti-Semitic, particularly in light, of course, of the Chamber of Secrets, where we're dealing with a core metaphor that is very familiar to, to those of us who have... have been a part of the discourse around Jewish populations in the 20th century and beyond. This is the story of ethnic cleansing. This is the story of the, the, the enforced purity of the bloodline, of ridding society of undesirable elements. I think that speaks much more strongly to both J.K. Rowling's perspective on, on the Jewish people and on the representations of the Jewish people, and of course on the Harry Potter novels and movies' perspective on those things. That said, though, to move on to lighter tones here, to move on to a lighter subject here, I did find something fascinating. Let me put this slide back up again. Because it was only while I was thinking about this, while I was looking deeply at goblins for, honestly, what may be the first time, that I realized something. The goblins are a smart, shrewd community which exists alongside wizarding culture, but doesn't generally intersect with it except in very definite and pre-described ways. 
They clearly have a magic that is all their own. They have a defined relationship with wizards. They have a distinctive appearance. And hey, does that remind you of anyone? Are the house elves and the goblins related? Well, traditionally, the answer is yes. If we're talking about fairy stories, the answer is yes. Fairies and elves and goblins and kobolds and gnomes and leprechauns all coexist in a generally shared space. They are, in the broadest possible terms, different ways of talking about the same idea. Oftentimes, goblins were divided into two subclasses. This is particularly true in in the Germanic tradition. Goblins, mischievous and tricksy, and hobgoblins. Hob coming from a word associated with the hearth and therefore representative of home and comfort. In fact, in certain parts of England, you will find folk tales that talk exclusively about hobs without the goblin suffix there. Hobgoblins are more friendly. They're given to helping human beings. Think of the shoemaker's elves, for example, rather than the trickster fairies who live in the deep woods. So, are the goblins in Harry Potter related to the house elves? Are house elves goblins that have been bonded in domestic slavery? Are they a related species? I don't know. I had this thought not, I'm looking at my watch, about two and a half hours before I sat down to begin this broadcast, so I haven't had a real opportunity to look into this. I haven't been able to to delve deeply into the lore. To the best of my recollection, That idea isn't presented even tangentially in the scope of either the books or the movies. If there is some reference to this idea, then you have to absolutely inform me of that. But I am curious about the connection between the two. And I'm curious because, of course, they look somewhat similar. But also I'm curious about the idea of non-human populations living alongside wizarding culture. We have a hint of that in the first book because we get the goblins and then we get the centaurs who live in the Forbidden Forest. Once we introduce Dobby, though... Well, it seems to me that we're building out a much broader world. And to describe the wizarding world as the wizarding world, that is to describe it such that it is defined by the wizard population, may be entirely unjust. It may be more fair to say that the wizard population, the human wizard population, is actually a component part of fairy of the realm of fairies and elves and gnomes and, yes, goblins and house elves. So if you have any particular thoughts on this, if you have any uh, any insight that you might want to offer, if this is an idea that has occurred to you before, I absolutely urge you to get in touch because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Because certainly, yes, as a few of you are pointing out here in the YouTube chat, they uh, they definitely, I think have a similar kind of magic. We'll see this much more clearly much later in the series um, when we circle back around to goblins. But I don't necessarily think that they're entirely the same same creatures. I don't necessarily think that they are the same race. Um, But there are sufficient similarities, I think, to... uh, (laughs) <laughs> to look into it. And in fact, we even get a similar... Let me uh, let me cancel that slide there. We even get a similar line of introduction because both the goblin that we meet at Gringotts in the first book and then Dobby when he has his first introduction, they're both described in similar terms that they bow so low that their noses almost touch the ground. Of course, we have talked about J.K. Rowling's fascination with noses as a, as a primary descriptor. Let's see what we have here. 
Sarah says it's possible, especially when you think about vampires. Oh, it scrolled off my screen as I was reading that. This is the risk of using the uh, the YouTube chat here. <laughs> no, I can't find it at all. Wonderful. <laughs> Sarah, I'm afraid your comet is lost for the ages and I can't recover. No, here it is. It's possible, especially when you think about vampires and centaurs and wizards and muggles. Yes, all human in some way, she says. Yeah. Oh, and of course, G.J. Corbin opens up a really interesting avenue of discussion. Goblin squibs. Yes, are they defined by magic? One of the thoughts I had is that centaurs, too, apparently can wield a relatively effortless, relatively powerful kind of magic. Is it true that humanity is predisposed to be, to be mugglish? Are we intruders, interlopers into the realm of magic? Possibly that absolutely speaks to a much older fairy tale tradition. So a lot to discuss there. If you would like to discuss this, of course, you can email me directly, podcast at storywonk.com. I read everything that comes through there. You can find me on Twitter at paperbullets, or you can head on over to the Storywonk forum at forum.storywonk.com. We can discuss things a little more deeply there. There's a lot of interesting conversation here. Good. Yeah. Chrissy says, I've thought twice about the goblins. Goblins have always been obsessed with gold in fairy tales, and the goblins will never stand for being taken advantage of in Harry Potter. Yeah, definitely there is a there's a kind of elemental connection there between the two. They, they clearly occupy a similar space, but there is there is something very J.K. Rowling about this, right? There's something very, very common about her her desire to take a almost cliched narrative convention, uh, almost cliched fairy tale convention, and to just tweak it ever so slightly. We've had goblin bankers in popular fiction before Harry Potter, but this is, in a sense, the ultimate realization of that, and I think she does it really rather beautifully. I, I like very much the way that, that goblins coexist alongside wizarding culture, though, as I said, it makes me wonder about the primary role, the, the definitive role of wizards in wizarding culture. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and we're talking about uh, we're talking about uh, interracial reproduction here. Yes. Um, I want to say it's Professor Flitwick. Professor Flitwick is said to have some goblin blood in his ancestry. I cannot remember for the life of me if that comes from the text in the books or if that comes from one of the legion of, of extra-textual sources. So don't quote me directly on that, but but yeah. Good. Let's move on. Let's get into our reading. Previously in the Chamber of Secrets, Colin Creevy was petrified. Dobby sent a bludger after Harry. We're working on a polyjuice potion in the hope that Draco Malfoy will just spontaneously confess to being the heir of Salazar Slytherin and then presumably wrap up the whole Chamber of Secrets thing, I guess. That seems to be the plan. This will, I think it's fair to say, here I am, 25 minutes in already, this will be a briefer section, a briefer session, excuse me. And it, I, I absolutely mean that this week because while there is a lot that I want to discuss, some of it doesn't have a great deal of depth. There are a few things this week that we're going to pull out explicitly just so we can talk about them later. We'll be talking about the Phoenix later. We'll be talking about, well, we'll be pulling out one scene that we'll talk about later in this session. So I guess that will, uh, that will do double duty here. <laughs> so we're going to move a little bit quickly. We should be out of here. Um, oh, let's say an hour, something like that. 
It's a rash promise, I know. I insist on making these rash promises up front, but it's uh <laughs> it's the burden of knowing my uh knowing my notes ahead of time. Let's get into our first slide um because we begin with our heroes. This is the direct aftermath from last week's reading as we're discussing everything that has happened, particularly everything that has happened with young Colin. Harry started to tell them about Colin, but Hermione interrupted. We already know. We heard Professor McGonagall telling Professor Flitwick this morning. That's why we decided we better get going. The sooner we get a confession out of Malfoy, the better, snarled Ron. Do you know what I think? He was in such a foul temper after the Quidditch match, he took it out on Colin. There's something else, said Harry, watching Hermione tearing bundles of knotgrass and throwing them into the potion. Dobby came to visit me in the middle of the night. Ron and Hermione looked up amazed. Harry told them everything Dobby had told him, or hadn't told him. Hermione and Ron listened with their mouths open. The Chamber of Secrets has been opened before, Hermione said. This settles it, said Ron in a triumphant voice. Lucius Malfoy must have opened the chamber when he was at school here, and now he's told dear old Draco how to do it. It's obvious. Wish Dobby told you what kind of monster's in there, though. I want to know how come nobody's noticed it sneaking around the school. Maybe it can make itself invisible, said Hermione, prodding leeches to the bottom of the cauldron. Or maybe it can disguise itself, pretending to be a suit of armor or something. I've read about chameleon ghouls. You read too much, Hermione, said Ron, pouring dead lace wings on top of the leeches. He crumpled up the empty lacewing bag and looked at Harry. I want to pull out, first of all, that last beat. You read too much Hermione. Now, of course, perhaps I have a chip on my shoulder because I was a studious kid. I was sorted into Ravenclaw. I have, in my time, been accused of reading too much. But let's look at this in the context of Harry Potter, in the context of Hogwarts. First, Chameleon ghouls sound like something we should be legitimately concerned about. Secondly, and more seriously, this is one of the spots where the school adventure story and the conventions thereof, and the fantasy story and the conventions thereof, clash. It is one thing for a character to be excessively studious about mathematics or history or geography in a mundane muggle high school. Those are subjects which don't really have direct applicable relevance to the school experience of most students. But this is wizard school. And in wizard school, knowledge is power. The thing which separates the greatest wizards of our time is knowledge, is information. Reading may make the difference between life and death. I'm trying to decide as I look at these chapters whether or not we are actively exploring Ron and Hermione's relationship, whether this is an evolution of the relationship that was established in the first book, or whether it is, in some sense, and I certainly don't mean this to be as critical as it sounds perhaps, in some sense a devolution of that relationship. Ron and Hermione have always bickered in this way, but here we are a year into their friendship a year into their shared experience. They have been through a lot, and I can't decide whether Ron's continued dismissal of Hermione's academic aptitude, academic interest, academic gift, is representative of something within Ron. Uh, an envy, perhaps? An attraction of some kind, perhaps? 
or this is just the flat narrative version of this relationship that that Hermione is the nerd and Ron is the underachiever and this is what their point of conflict will forever be. That, I think, is an open question. That is going to remain an open question. Really, though, I wanted to call out this scene because I want to put a pin in this scene so that we can discuss it later. I want to pay very close attention to, in particular, Ron's dialogue. Ron's absolute certainty of events. Because we'll circle back around to that later. (laughs) Family Guy says, Quidditch jocks get all the girls still. (laughs) And Jason says, if it weren't for Hermione's reading, Harry and Ron would be lost. Yes, a few of us are, uh, yes, a few of us are echoing that sentiment. I think you're absolutely right. Potato Girl says, I think Ron is just teasing. He's sure in Hermione's brain power and he knows he can tease her without her taking it to heart and reading less. That's an interesting idea. Because if something is mutable, if there is a quality possessed by a character, possessed by a person, possessed by an individual that is uncertain and it is mocked, it is ridiculed, then perhaps the effort to change that thing is is the truly ignoble act. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll give that some thought. I I, I like that. Good. And we have a few voices here speaking up in favor of Hermione's essential protagonism, which remains true through these chapters, too, that's for sure. From there, we move immediately into planning the theft. We have a little discussion of Christmas. Let's uh, look very quickly at this slide here. In the second week of December, Professor McGonagall came around as usual, collecting names of those who would be staying at school for Christmas. Harry, Ron, and Hermione signed her list. They had heard that Malfoy was staying, which struck them as very suspicious. The holidays would be the perfect time to use the polyjuice potion and try to worm a confession out of him. Unfortunately, the potion was only half finished. They still needed the bicorn horn and the boomslang skin, and the only place they were going to get them was from Snape's private stores. Harry privately felt he'd rather face Slytherin's legendary monster than let Snape catch him robbing his office. What we need, said Hermione briskly as Thursday afternoon's double potion class loomed, is a diversion. Then one of us can sneak into Snape's office and take what we need. Harry and Ron looked at her nervously. I think I'd better do the actual stealing, Hermione continued in a matter-of-fact voice. You two will be expelled if you get in any more trouble, and I've got a clean record. So all you need to do is cause enough mayhem to keep Snape busy for five minutes or so. We will subsequently learn... Later in, huh, later in this reading? Perhaps either this reading or next week's reading, I forget. But we will subsequently learn that Ron's parents are visiting his eldest brother, Bill, in Egypt, which in part explains why he is staying in Hogwarts for Christmas. But Hermione's choice to stay is a bit of a puzzle. Not only is she the one in the most direct danger from whatever is contained within the Chamber of Secrets, but she went home for Christmas last year without a word. We've talked previously about the narrative space created by the Christmas vacation and the possibilities afforded our heroes by the suspension of classes, by the the provision of less oversight. But it also serves to emphasize the break between the school year and the summer, and thereby, in a broader sense, the wizard world and the muggle world. So on the one hand... I am saddened somewhat that Hermione isn't returning home to spend Christmas with her parents, but on the other, 
I think this is a very powerful means of, of more forcefully delineating the gap, the gulf between the wizard world and the muggle world. Once you're at Hogwarts, you're at Hogwarts, and you leave only when your complete arc has been described. You leave only when you are done. And of course, I don't mean done with your entire education, but done with the school year. Leaving halfway through the school year, returning to the Muggle world, while it makes a kind of logical sense, it makes less narrative sense, and certainly less thematic sense. Emily says perhaps Hermione's parents went abroad for Christmas as well. Emily, perhaps Hermione's parents went abroad with the Weasleys. I think you have just solved this. I think Arthur Weasley invited them to Egypt. That is my new headcanon. I love that. <laughs> Let's just all adopt that idea. Emily has, has fixed it for us. Good. <laughs> oh, Sophia says, I wonder during Christmas, do the few students move up the table or will all the students sit at one table that is not defined as a house table? <gasps> now that's fascinating. I don't think off the top of my head that we actually get an explanation of that. But I kind of like the idea of all of the remnant children, all of the kids who are left at Hogwarts over the holidays, gathering together at one table to celebrate. Although, even as I say that, no, I'm kind of attracted to the idea, too, that they all still stay in their corners. I love the idea that the Gryffindors are on one side of the Great Hall, glowering at the Slytherins who are on the other side making clever remarks, while maybe Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw gather together to have one big meal and to, to swap presents. I like that idea. Oh, Sabrina says, don't we see the one table in Book 3 Christmas? I do not remember. We may well, yeah. Yes, and Sharon says, but doesn't Hermione need to be there to brew the potion and stuff? No, she absolutely does. This is why we're doing it here. Though, I guess, in a in a broader narrative sense, why do we have to be doing this at Christmas? Why does the, the Polyjuice potion need a month to brew? Well, we want the conceit. We want the, the space to do this at Christmas. So Hermione is needed, but in a sense, Hermione is only needed because we want to have Hermione there. Yeah. Good. And Jennifer says, a boomslang is Earth ancestor of the Budong in Farscape and the dead giant mining colony, the Nowhere in Guardians of the Galaxy. I believe... Oh, and a few people are confirming that it is, in fact, book three. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. Oh, and Sean says, the sooner, the sooner Hermione's parents accept Arthur Weasley as their inevitable BFF, the better their lives will be. I couldn't agree more. I think we should all accept, uh, we should all accept Arthur Weasley as our new best friend. So we see in this scene, I just realized I'm still sharing this, uh, slide. We see in this scene a measure of Hermione's awesome practicality. We see take charge badass Hermione, one of my favorite versions of Hermione that we'll get in the series. But we do have to wonder, I think, a little at her logic. We do have to wonder a little at her sense of her own position and her sense of Harry and Ron's respective positions, because she has to steal the supplies, yes, and certainly I think she's less likely to screw it up than either Harry or Ron would be, but their task is to create mayhem right in front of Snape's face. Which means that if we're concerned about expulsion, and ultimately, of course, we should be, because when Snape recovers the firecracker from the cauldron and says, whoever did this, if I ever find out who it was, I will expel them, we should have expected that. So I love Hermione's practicality, but there is a logical, a logical gap here, which I guess 
may be explained away. Perhaps Hermione expected Harry and Ron to come up with something a little more sophisticated than throwing a firework across a crowded classroom. Maybe something a little more subtle would have served them a little better there. From there, we move on to the newly established Dueling Club. And this leads us to one of my favorite passages in the entire book. Lockhart and Snape turned to face each other and bowed. At least Lockhart did, with much twirling of his hands, whereas Snape jerked his head irritably. Then they raised their wands like swords in front of them. As you see, we're holding our wands in the accepted combative position, Lockhart told the silent crowd. On the count of three, we will cast our first spells. Neither of us will be aiming to kill, of course. I wouldn't bet on that, Harry murmured, watching Snape baring his teeth. One, two, three... Both of them swung their wands above their heads and pointed them at their opponent. Snape cried, Expelliarmus! There was a dazzling flash of scarlet light, and Lockhart was blasted off his feet. He flew backward off the stage, smashed into the wall, and slid down it to sprawl on the floor. Dueling is a strange concept in Harry Potter, particularly at this point. It is... Another relic of wizard world medievalism. Medievalism, I guess, in this sense, filtered somewhat through the Renaissance. But the specific forms of the duel seem to be of formal and somewhat limited use. A duel may be seen as a reasonable way of addressing grievances, addressing insults, I guess, but it is of less practical use if your aim is either to outright kill your opponent or to protect yourself against something that doesn't care about the conventions of the duel. It is of, I think, a specifically limited application at this point in the story, unless Lockhart believes that the monster that has emerged from the Chamber of Secrets is likely to obey the formalities of duel etiquette, and yet, and yet, it works beautifully. The totemic idea of the wizard duel is one that is going to echo right through the series. We've had, of course, our first glimpse of it already. Dueling is mentioned in the first book. Here we see the first practical application of this, this cold skill, which is nonetheless celebrated as a part of wizarding culture. It seems to be practiced and certainly exercised as a, as a, as a sport more like fencing than an actual you know, 18th century duel. I love the symbolism of it. I love the metaphor of it. I love the simplicity and the elegance and, yes, even the formality of it. And it reminds us that in all culture, fictional or real, there are observed forms. There are things that we do which may not make inherent sense. They may not be in and of themselves sensible, pragmatic, efficient. They may not be applicable to this time and this place, but we do them nonetheless because they have within them an intrinsic value. And that intrinsic value is as much social, is as much cultural as it is anything else. Wizards duel because wizards duel. I think we see that echoed out from this moment, from our first glimpse of dueling culture out through the series, 
goodness knows it is one of the most striking and enduring visual images, whether you're thinking of the book or you're thinking of the movie, it is one of the most enduring visual images that you'll get from Harry Potter. This idea of two wizards with one arm held up over their heads, the wands pointed at the other. It's a really powerful image. And there are moments like this in this book and in each of the books where J.K. Rowling proves her skill. She proves herself singularly and remarkably capable of cutting to the very heart of the idea, of representing the core sensation of the thing fully on the page. It may not make the most cold, logical sense, but it is the most wizardy thing <laughs> that they could possibly be doing in this moment. What do we think? Do we agree with that? Let me, uh, Cancel this slide too. I'm being particularly forgetful when it comes to canceling slides tonight. I do apologize. So what do we think of, of this? Oh, we're mentioning Hamilton. I resisted the urge to mention Hamilton when I'm talking about dealing. It's very difficult. GJ Corbin says Hamilton would be Slytherin, right? I might be tempted to disagree. Hamilton, of course, possessed of a world-class brain. So we could see him as a Ravenclaw. Certainly he's studious. Certainly he writes enough. If Hermione tells us anything about the inclinations of Ravenclaw-inclined students, then certainly Hamilton would fit there. But also, of course, possessed of that singular courage, the defining characteristic of Gryffindors, which we'll talk about later in tonight's session. Yeah. Oh, and we're looking here at, uh, yeah, Usagi says on Twitter, is Lockhart really incompetent or Snape just that much more competent or just willing to humiliate Lockhart? To which Kate replies with perfect efficiency, yes, I think all of those things may be true. I think it is, as Emily says on Twitter, partly that Snape is all too happy to take advantage of Lockhart's incompetence. And of course, very simply that Lockhart, huh, Quick question for those of you who are perhaps more encyclopedically familiar with this book than I am. Does Gilderoy Lockhart cast within the pages of this text a single successful spell? Does he cast a single spell that actually accomplishes his aim? I can't think of any. Am I missing an obvious one? <laughs> We're all, I think, exhibiting great restraint, not simply quoting the Ten Jewel Commandments here in the, uh, in the YouTube chat. No, okay, so we're all saying no. Oh, Catherine says he knocks out his own memory. Yes, not quite the intended application of that spell, certainly, but yes. I guess, broadly speaking, he must be familiar with memory cantrips for reasons which we'll, spoilers, not discuss right now, but get into. Yes, yes. Good. Right. <laughs> no, it seems to be the case, yeah. Jen says, yes, his one spoiler spell. Sure. Yeah. Claire says he debones Harry's arm, which works, but is idiotic. Yes, the deboning is a strange one. I think he was trying to, to mend the bone rather than remove it entirely. Still one of the, uh, one of the grosser descriptions in the entire book. That, that rubber glove description. Just not a good one. All right. So I, I absolutely love the, Really, the entire dueling sequence. I love the formality of it. I love the structure of it. And I love the way that we are... I suppose in its way. I'm trying to think of what the what the applicable metaphor would be. I'm trying to think of, of what 
dueling would represent in a contemporary high school. And it's tempting to say that it would be sports, but that's not quite right. I guess partly because Quidditch fulfills that that role in 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 contemporary school culture. It's almost more like for for those American students in the audience, it feels almost more like the Pledge of Allegiance. It feels almost more like it's something that is is emblematic of who and of what we are. So I'm willing to overlook the logical inconsistencies here just because it makes me so, so happy. Yes. All right. Malfoy summons a snake to attack Harry. Lockhart steps in and makes the situation worse. He, he pulls a real Lockhart there, I think it's fair to say. And then Harry takes unexpected action. He calls out to the snake, which responds to his voice, revealing to everyone present that Harry speaks Parseltongue. Harry's public display of Parseltongue is, of course, enough to attract suspicion. Everyone now believes that he is the heir of Slytherin, which can presumably only be confirmed by his presence at or near the various crime scenes. More on that at the end of the reading. Harry even eavesdrops on some Hufflepuff kids discussing it. So anyway, a stout boy. That's that's far too deep for a stout boy, isn't it? That's basically Hagrid's voice. I'll start over. So anyway, a stout boy was saying, I told Justin to, ke- to hide up in our dormitory. I mean to say, if Potter's marked him down as the next victim, it's best he keeps a low profile for a while. Of course, Justin's been waiting for something like this to happen ever since he let slip to Potter he was muggle-born. Justin actually told him he'd been down for Eton. That's not the kind of thing you bandy about with Slytherin's air on the loose, is it? You definitely think it's Potter then, Ernie? Said a girl with blonde pigtails, anxiously. Hannah, said the stout boy solemnly, he's a parcel mouth. Everyone knows that's the mark of a dark wizard. Have you ever heard of a decent one who could talk to snakes? They called Slytherin himself Serpent Tongue. There was some heavy murmuring at this, and Ernie went on. Remember what was written on the wall? Enemies of the air, beware. Potter had some sort of run-in with Filch. Next thing we know, Filch's cats attacked. That first year, Creevy was annoying Potter at the Quidditch match, taking pictures of him when he was lying in the mud. Next thing we know, Creevy's been attacked. I mentioned previously that we wanted to bear in mind the scene which started this reading, the scene between Harry and Ron and Hermione, in which Ron is just so super sure that everything can be placed at the feet of Draco Malfoy. Because here we see an absolutely deliberate hammer blow of a parallel here. And I mentioned previously, last week, maybe the week before, that what I want more than anything is the version of this story from Ginny Weasley's perspective, but that, it turns out, is not actually true. What I want more than anything is the version of this story from the perspective of the Hufflepuff heroes from Justin and Ernie and Hannah. As I said before, they create an obvious parallel. It's that same three-part structure. It's that same power trio relationship. They are the Hufflepuff version of Harry and Ron and Hermione, and I love that. I love that we echo the structure all over the place. So, This, as mentioned, is the alternate version of that scene that we discussed at the beginning of the reading. And as I mentioned in that previous session, Justin and Ernie and Hannah are the perfect stand-ins for Harry and for Ron and Hermione. So here we have the Hufflepuff counterparts to our heroes, 
leaping acrobatically, athletically, to exactly the wrong conclusion. Except this time, we know that it's the wrong conclusion. We know that, okay, Harry may, I guess, be the heir of Slytherin. Doesn't seem likely since his name's on the cover of the book, but he may be. But we know that he wasn't responsible for Colin Creevy being petrified. We know that he wasn't responsible for Mrs. Norris being petrified. We know that this is simply a case of Harry being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So why do we include both of these scenes? Why do we have, within the frame of the same chapter, our heroes leaping acrobatically to one conclusion and the Hufflepuff heroes leaping to another? It seems to me that we're not just... We're not just foreshadowing the fact that, spoilers, I guess, for the end of this reading, we're not just foreshadowing the fact that Draco Malfoy, despite Ron's certainty, is not, in fact, the heir of Slytherin. We're also saying something very important about about this community and about the way that information spreads. We segregate these children into houses, and we, for better or for worse, make these houses suspicious of each other. We set them against each other. And sure, the vast majority of those interactions is going to be fun. They're going to be playful. They're going to be sports-related. But at the heart of the idea of the great houses, at the heart of the unity that we discussed last week when we were discussing the construction of Hogwarts in the first place, is this division, is this conflict, this cold war of seething distrust between the houses. I don't think that it's accidental that we're leaning on this here. I don't think that it's... <laughs> I don't think that it's self-indulgently cute. I don't think that it's self-indulgently whimsical. I don't think that it's self-indulgently funny, though arguably it is all three of those things. I think that that the story here is making a very careful point about this kind of suspicion and distrust, while also, of course making a point about Harry's celebrity. It's been a few weeks now here in Dear Mr. Potter since we really talked about Harry's fame, but fame is important. Harry has hmm, unwittingly almost leveraged his celebrity in order to, to undertake the quests that he has set for himself, in order to achieve the goals that he has set. He's not above at least enjoying the benefits of celebrity. If nothing else, he gets to play Quidditch, and he shouldn't have been allowed to play Quidditch in his first year. This, though, is the dark side of celebrity. If you fall under suspicion, that suspicion is everywhere, and it is immediate, and it is all at once, and it is, in a sense, insurmountable. I think the <laughs> Family Guy in the YouTube chat says Hufflepuff is the paranoid house. Well, see, I would be inclined to agree, if not for the fact that we just saw this play out with our Gryffindor heroes, too. I don't know. We may most charitably perhaps be, be reinforcing the idea that kids are kids are kids are kids, that the community of Hogwarts is unified in a way that isn't immediately apparent when we're focused on the conflict between Gryffindor and Slytherin. And I'm aware, even as I'm talking about the, the Cold War between the houses, we're not really including Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw in that, because who cares, really, at this point in, in the story? Who cares about Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw? The conflict is Gryffindor and Slytherin. Or, more acutely, I suppose, the conflict is everyone against Slytherin. And we'll talk about that at the end of tonight's reading, too. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, and Usagi observes, yes, of course. No, the competition between houses is not just sports-related. All the teachers give up points during and in between classes. That's absolutely fair. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural competition. It's a cultural conflict, almost. So while we're focusing on the strengths of harmony and unity, while we explore this idea of wizarding culture, which... Which house you are in at Hogwarts seems to make, with, with only a handful of exceptions, seems to make precious little difference once you have left Hogwarts. And yet while you are in Hogwarts, it is the most important thing in the world. It is the core of your identity. And for those of us who have been over to Pottermore and have been sorted courtesy of the sorting hat, or for those of us who predate Pottermore and were sorted thanks to some BuzzFeed quiz or just, you know, gut instinct... We understand that kind of tribalism. We understand that kind of identity politics. That's important, and it's not trivial. But it's also not everything. And it doesn't or shouldn't codify lines of conflict. I find it all just fascinating. This is one of those beats where... This is one of those beats where I am reminded that J.K. Rowling is a not just more capable writer than is often recognized, but a more ambitious and thoughtful writer than is often recognized. There is so much more going on under the surface here than, than is immediately apparent. Let's, uh, let's move on. Oh, Claire says, but isn't that school? These things are life and death in school, then the world ends every, every Tuesday, and then we graduate and other things matter more. Yes, absolutely. And Sabrina says, yes, it's more like being in a sorority or a fraternity, I guess. Yes, I'm not terribly familiar with the, the, the interior mechanics of the Greek system because we just didn't have that in Britain. So it's certainly not something that I ever ran across in my, my years of higher education. But certainly my, my perception of the fraternity sorority system in pop culture would suggest, yeah, maybe, maybe it is more like that. Maybe it is more about, although I suppose no, because fraternities and sororities, at least within my, my limited experience, don't claim to define something fundamental about who you are. But when we're sorted, that is at least making a claim for your core identity. It is at least making a, a play toward your core identity, your sense of self. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's push on to the final beat in this story. And again, one of my favorites, I, I realized today, actually, that, uh, that looking at this reading, I think that chapter 11 may be one of my favorites in the entire book. It is so bouncy, so energetic, and yet there is so much going on there that, that, uh, that's worthy of discussion. And here we have an absolute kicker. This is the very end of the chapter. As Harry once again finds himself in exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time, he turned to squint at what he'd fallen over and felt as though his stomach had dissolved. Justin Finch Fletchley was lying on the floor, rigid and cold, a look of shock frozen on his face, his eyes staring blankly at the ceiling. And that wasn't all. Next to him was another figure, the strangest sight Harry had ever seen. It was nearly headless Nick. No longer pearly white and transparent, but black and smoky, floating immobile and horizontal six inches off the floor. His head was half off, and his face wore an expression of shock identical to Justin's. Harry got to his feet, his breathing fast and shallow, his heart doing a kind of drum roll against his ribs. He looked wildly up and down the deserted corridor and saw a line of spiders scuttling as fast as they could away from the bodies. 
The only sounds were the muffled voices of teachers from the classes on either side. He could run, and no one would ever know he had been there. But he couldn't just leave them lying there. He had to help. Would anyone believe he hadn't had anything to do with this? The otherworldly petrification of nearly headless Nick is genuinely disquieting. But I think the most interesting thing here, not to diminish the fate of, of Justin Finch Fletchley, who, as previously mentioned, is one of my favorite characters, the most interesting thing in this scene, despite Harry ending up in the wrong place at the wrong time yet again, is that last beat, where Harry considers fleeing, but can't. He wants to help, he wants to be honest, even though he knows there will be a price, which takes us directly to the question of Harry's heroism. Harry's exceptionalism is his most conspicuous characteristic. Harry's exceptionalism has, in a sense, defined his arc from the very beginning of the first book all the way to this moment. In a sense, he is the hero because he is the hero. His virtues are inherited. He is the boy who lived. That's been an ongoing discussion, and I think that we've noted a certain amount of gentle and well-intentioned hypocrisy associated with it. It is disgusting and egregious that Lucius Malfoy bought the Slytherin team new broomsticks. But it's totally okay that McGonagall brought Harry a new broomstick and bent the rules, allowing him to play Quidditch in his first year. There may be a slight imbalance there. There may be a slight double standard there that is accounted for explicitly, because Harry is special. But now we're beginning to see something else. We're beginning to see a growing maturity, a move from the virtue of exceptionalism to the virtues of agency. Harry is beginning to choose to be a hero rather than ending up the hero by circumstance or by a, a kind of narrative momentum. We are who we are, it is said, when we are alone, when we are unobserved. And it's one thing for Harry to be the voice of courage earlier in the book when he's with Ron and Hermione, but it's another for him to display this kind of moral strength. And I want to be clear, I don't think Harry is a bad guy. I don't think he is weak at the beginning of the book, or honestly, throughout much of the first book. I think he's a perfectly good kid who has found himself has found himself burdened with celebrity, with destiny, with exceptionalism. This, though, isn't a function of exceptionalism. This is a function of choice. And in exhibiting that courage, in making that choice, in, in wanting to make that right choice, he is offering a conclusive disproof of his Slytherin nature. Courage is the sole and special virtue of Gryffindor. And when it is tested, Harry is courageous. It's not the courage of the Quidditch pitch, where he's in front of spectators and, and teachers and his peers. It is not the courage of the leader in front of his friends. Here, no one would know if he ran. No one would know if he slipped away and never said anything. But his instinct is still to do the right thing. And what turns that into courage, what turns that into bravery, is the acknowledgement that there will be 
a consequence. He is willing to pay the price. He is willing to face his fear. He is willing to step forward and do the right thing, no matter what. To sneak away would be the self-serving Slytherin solution, but Harry refuses. And that's why Harry's a hero. That's why Harry's name belongs on the front of the book. And as we've said, there have been times when that hasn't been entirely clear, when that hasn't been entirely true. And I say that not to take anything away from Harry. And here I am, leaving the slide up again. I say that not to take anything away from Harry, but simply to recognize that exceptionalism, to recognize that structure contained within the first book. We have something very different here. We have, we have the beginning of, of choice and of adult agency, and that is powerful. I find this to be one of the most impressive moments that we get from Harry in the entire novel. Just the fact that he acknowledges that terrible things are about to happen to him and that it's none of his fault and, and no one could really blame him for, for turning his back and pretending that he never saw Justin on the floor, but he wants to do the right thing. He wants to help. I should say, too, that, that <laughs> I know that there are Slytherins in the audience, and I don't mean to demean you specifically when I talk about the cowardice of, of Slytherin or I talk about the self-serving nature of Slytherin. As I've said before, the houses are not yet here in the middle of Chamber of Secrets what they will become. We haven't yet refined Slytherin to something more sophisticated, to something more adult, honestly. Right now, they are just evil house. That's going to change, but not just yet. So... I apologize, but but assume that when I talk favorably about Slytherin, I'm talking about, you know, seventh-year Slytherin. <laughs> As Kate says, burdened by glorious purpose. Yes, is there any doubt that Loki would be Slytherin? Is there any doubt that Loki is the poster child of House Slytherin? I have no doubt at all. All right. Let's uh, keep going on. <clears throat> yes, good. Oh, and Kate, this is this is this is a very uh a very nice piece of analysis. Kate says his celebrity is not why he gets to play Quidditch, but both are caused by his exceptionalism, so they are related, but they are not cause and effect. Mm. Yes, though we might wonder if the reason that there isn't a riot after a first year gets to be seeker for Gryffindor, if the reason why the other teams just refuse to play because McGonagall's breaking the rules is because of Harry's celebrity. If that doesn't still constantly... I mean, this is this is the argument for privilege, right? Harry will never know what it is to not be Harry. Harry will never know what it is to be Neville Longbottom, for example. There are going to be innumerable challenges that, that, that Harry will overcome simply by virtue of his hairiness that we will never even acknowledge, we'll never even be aware of, because honestly, they won't even be mentioned in the text. We can pull out the big ones. Yes, we can pull out the injustice at the end of the first book. We can pull out the, the weirdness with the, the Nimbus 2000, but we can't necessarily catalog every single meaningful interaction. It's an interesting point of speculation. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going into chapter 12, into Dumbledore's office, and into the introduction of Fox the Phoenix. I wonder if Tony Stark is Ravenclaw or Slytherin. Slytherin. Tony Stark's great virtue is not education, but genius. And I think that that, that kind of anarchic, uncontrolled, undisciplined genius is much more a Slytherin trait. Slytherins are not stupid. 
You know, Slytherin and Ravenclaw are kind of aligned on that side of, of the bell curve here. There's nothing in the Gryffindor personality that demands intelligence, nor in the Hufflepuff personality. But I think there is, in order to be the best Slytherin, you would also have to be fiendishly intelligent. So I would put him more on that side of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and Camille in the YouTube chat makes my favorite pun of the evening. Simply Gryffindor. I like that very much. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on to Fox the Phoenix, and we're going to move on to this less because I need to discuss this in depth and more because we need to put a pin in this for much, much later. Professor, Harry gasped, your bird, I couldn't do anything, he just caught fire. To Harry's astonishment, Dumbledore smiled. About time too, he said. He's been looking dreadful for days. I've been telling him to get a move on. He chuckled at the stunned look on Harry's face. Fawkes is a phoenix, Harry. Phoenixes burst into flame when it is time for them to die and are reborn from the ashes. Watch him. Harry looked down in time to see a tiny, wrinkled, newborn bird poke its head out of the ashes. It was quite as ugly as the old one. It's a shame you had to see him on a burning day, said Dumbledore, seating himself behind his desk. He's really very handsome most of the time. Wonderful red and gold plumage. Fascinating creatures, phoenixes. They can carry immensely heavy loads. Their tears have healing powers. And they can make highly faithful pets. I like the introduction of Fox well enough, and it is, God knows, another overwhelming detail of the wizarding world to hit Harry at exactly the wrong moment. I would note that I kind of desperately want the plural of phoenix to be phoenixes, but I guess it isn't. Mostly, I'm including this because we're going to return to the topic of the phoenix right at the end of the book. Those of you who have read this novel know what is coming. Those of you who have read this novel know that Fox is one of the more controversial elements, so I want to take this time to think, in a sense, proactively about Fox so that we can address him more directly when he turns up at the end of the book. And also to, to prime us all, I think, to consider more carefully the Phoenix. Now, obviously, the Phoenix is going to be singularly applicable later in the Harry Potter series, but within the bounds of this book, it's too powerful a symbol, too powerful and potent a metaphor, and honestly, too important an element, narratively speaking, to be easily dismissed. But the phoenix as a metaphor is always felt a little unanchored to me. It's always felt a little, a little nebulous. There's clearly a lot of meaning and, and presence and purpose but it's just kind of hanging there. And I don't specifically mean in this scene, but in the book as a whole, it's just kind of hanging there. And it doesn't feel particularly well connected to anything. At least it hasn't during previous readings. So I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to the Phoenix metaphor as we move through the book. And then ultimately, of course, to the Phoenix itself at the end of the book. But I'm curious what you guys think about the metaphor, about obviously this metaphor of, of, Rebirth, and we should note, I guess there's there's something of a joke here, almost. Uh, the fact that the phoenix is called Fox, the fact that uh, the phoenix has a burning day. If you are British, you are familiar with the lore surrounding Bonfire Night, November the fifth. If you are familiar with the history of 
Guy Fawkes, the traitor who tried almost successfully to blow up the Houses of Parliament and who is burned in effigy on top a bonfire all over the country uh, every November 5th. And this feels like an appropriate reference. But I have seen American readers and and, and readers of other nations miss that tiny detail uh, uh, in the background here of the story. So if you haven't you know, built up some familiarity with the story of Guy Fawkes, head on over to Wikipedia and 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 look him up because it's actually a fascinating story and the way that it has entered British cultural life, British public discourse almost, is is fascinating and and weird, honestly. Fascinating and weird maybe the best combination of things that I can I can say about it. Yes, as Kat says, remember, remember the fifth of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. Yes. Good, good, good. Let's um, move on immediately. Uh, here we are at 10 after 8, and I still have three slides? Three slides to get through. Um, mostly, though, this is going to be pretty quick. We only have a few details in each slide to pull out. We move on from there. Hagrid defends Harry, of course, but that's unnecessary because Dumbledore has an unshakable faith in our boy hero. When Christmas finally arrives, Harry and the others are ready to finish the Polyjuice Potion. Step one... Knock out some Slytherin kids. Once they were safely stowed among the buckets and mops, Harry yanked out a couple of the bristles that covered Goyle's forehead, and Ron pulled out several of Crab's hairs. They also stole their shoes, because their own were far too small for Crab and Goyle-sized feet. Then, still stunned on what they had done, they sprinted up to Moaning Myrtle's bathroom. They could hardly see for the thick, black smoke issuing from the stall in which Hermione was stirring the cauldron. Pulling their robes up over their faces, Harry and Ron knocked softly on the door. Hermione! They heard the scrape of the lock, and Hermione emerged, shiny-faced and looking anxious. Behind her, they heard the gloop, gloop of the bubbling, glutinous potion. Three glass tumblers stood ready on the toilet seat. Did you get them? Hermione asked breathlessly. Harry showed her Goyle's hair. Good, and I sneaked these spare robes out of the laundry, Hermione said, holding up a small sack. You'll need bigger ones, since your grab, and since your crab, excuse me, and Goyle. I love the... Incidental detail that we're stealing Crab and Goyle's shoes, but not their robes, because we don't really want Harry and Ron to leave a couple of naked or near-naked schoolboys laying around in their wake. Although, I guess actually the question of what is worn beneath a wizard's robes is a controversial one. The answer, judging from the books, seems to be either little or nothing at all. Luckily, by this point... I have, and I'm sure you have too, the movie versions of the outfits seared into my brain. So I can now use that as a canon description, and I don't really have to worry about the fact that they're all running around half-naked under their robes. Really, though, we're talking about morality here. We're talking about, essentially, roofing a couple of fellow students so that you can steal their identities and trick another student into confession. And this requires the navigation of some very interesting moral boundaries because this isn't this isn't immoral action with a clearly good purpose this isn't for example breaking the rules to help hagrid get rid of his pet dragon this is something else entirely this exists on a continuum and i wonder i wonder how comfortable we are as readers about this <laughs> there's yeah it it is a little uh it is a little a little challenging i think morally speaking 
Crab and Goyle are Slytherin kids, and therefore we kind of treat them like they're not as morally significant as good kids would be. Let me pose this question, I suppose, to kind of kind of draw the contrast a little more starkly. Would Harry and Ron roofie a couple of Gryffindor kids? Would they take out Neville and Seamus in order to accomplish the same goal? Well, perhaps if the circumstances were dire enough, but we haven't made the case here. In fact, if anything, we've undercut the case here. J.K. Rowling has undercut the case by giving us the perspective of the Hufflepuff heroes on this same subject. So I don't know how I feel about this, but I do like the consequence. And I like the consequence. Well, let's let's move ahead. We're, we're going to take a very quick detour. Then we're going to get into the final side of the evening. And I'm going to talk about why exactly I like the consequence of this. Because, again, I think something much more thoughtful is happening here. They finally make their way to Malfoy, who, to add insult to indignity, has a newspaper clipping from the Daily Prophet, which is headed, Inquiry at the Ministry of Magic. Arthur Weasley, head of the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts Office, was today fined 50 galleons for bewitching a muggle car. Mr. Lucius Malfoy, a governor of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, where the enchanted car crashed earlier this year, called today for Mr. Weasley's resignation. Weasley has brought the ministry into disrepute, Mr. Malfoy told our reporter. He is clearly unfit to draw up our laws, and his ridiculous Muggle Protection Act should be scrapped immediately. Mr. Weasley was unavailable for comment, although his wife told reporters to clear off or she'd set the family ghoul on them. Fifty Galleons for those of you keeping track at home, is between 350 bucks and 400 bucks in today's muggle money. What's more interesting here, though? Well, there are two interesting things here. The first is the class difference in action. We talked before about the tension between the Malfoys as representatives of the aristocratic class and the Weasleys as representatives, as as inappropriate as this may be, as representatives of the working class, or at least the lower middle class. Look at the language that is used here. Mr. Malfoy is a governor of the school and gets a direct quote. He gets an extensive quote. Mr. Weasley's wife, who isn't even directly named, she, oh, we might not expect Molly, perhaps, but we might expect Mrs. Weasley. She doesn't even get named, and she gets an indirect quote in less elevated, much more colloquial language. Although his wife told reporters to clear off or she'd set the family ghoul on them. You can almost hear the scorn. And we don't, I think, really have a sense at this point of the Daily Prophet being being a tool of the aristocratic classes. We don't really have a sense that it is the, the mouthpiece for the established order, for the status quo. This is just the kind of class divide that goes uncommented upon. But yes, Molly Weasley, <laughs> just to confirm what a lot of you are saying in YouTube chat and on Twitter, Molly Weasley, definitively the greatest. She's awesome. Here's my question, though. Who determined that Arthur Weasley enchanted the car? Because the car itself has vanished. And as we'll find out later in the book, the car itself has not been available for inspection. So who proved that Arthur Weasley enchanted a muggle artifact? I think there's only one explanation here, and it is an explanation that I find, oh, just enormously satisfying. 
I think that Arthur Weasley, good soul that he is, confessed. I think he went to his boss and said, I have something to tell you. Which would explain, in part, the 50 galleon fine, which is a not inconsequential sum of money, but certainly not a punitive sum of money for breaking what we must assume is one of the more important rules, particularly when it comes to betraying your responsibilities as head of the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts office. I love the idea that Arthur volunteered this information just because he knew that he'd done wrong, just because he knew that he should come clean. <laughs> Potato Girl says Arthur probably confessed. Oh, good. We're... we're Agreeing here. This is good. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, and we are drawing some connections here. The Daily Prophet says Sean equals mouthpiece of the ministry. And that is a very important distinction here because one of the tensions that we're looking at within this book is the tension between the aristocracy and the new bureaucracy. We're looking at the difference between the 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 singularly controlled temporal authority of the great wizarding houses, the pureblood houses, and this much more democratic, much more readily accountable, and therefore much more broadly oriented, muggle-born oriented, much more permissive, much more general authority of the ministry, of, of government in general. Obviously, this is this is still in part some kind of representative democracy, so we can assume that there is there is a greater a greater voice given to a greater number of wizards because of the authority of the ministry, of government in general, over the older authority of the great houses. I think that's one of the core tensions that we're looking at. So the fact that the Daily Prophet is the mouthpiece of the ministry and is yet skewing toward this much older kind of representation, this this bended knee, you know, genuflect when you say that fella approach to to the Malfoys. I think there's something in that. Again, I think we're foreshadowing some really interesting and, and powerful ideas. And Anna in the YouTube chat has said another of my very favorite things. Arthur Weasley is Harry Potter's Leslie Nope. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot after this lecture is over. Let's get on to the last slide and then we'll talk about the heir of Slytherin. Saint Potter, the mudblood's friend, said Malfoy slowly. He's another one with no proper wizard feeling, or he wouldn't go around with that jumped-up Granger mudblood. And people think he's Slytherin's heir. Harry and Ron waited with bated breath. Malfoy was surely seconds away from telling them it was him. But then, I wish I knew who it is, said Malfoy petulantly. I could help them. Ron's jaw dropped so that Crabbe looked even more clueless than usual. Fortunately, Malfoy didn't notice, and Harry, thinking fast, said... You must have some idea who's behind it all. You know I don't. You know I haven't. Goyle, how many times do I have to tell you? Snapped Malfoy. And father won't tell me anything about the last time the chamber was opened either. Of course, it was fifty years ago, so it was before his time. But he knows all about it. And he says that it was all kept quiet, and it'll look suspicious if I know too much about it. But I know one thing. Last time the Chamber of Secrets was opened, a mudblood died. So I bet it's a matter of time before one of them's killed this time. I hope it's Granger, he said with relish. Ron was clenching Crabbe's gigantic fists. Feeling that it would be a bit of a giveaway if Ron punched Malfoy, Harry shot him a warning look and said, "'Do you know if the person who opened the chamber last time was caught?' "'Oh, yeah. Whoever it was was expelled,' said Malfoy. "'They're probably still in Azkaban.' 
so here we have the moment itself. Here we have, of course, the either, I guess, subversion of our expectation if we're coming to the story from a more naive perspective or the realization of our expectation if we've been keeping track of some of the clues that have been layered in by J.K. Rowling over the preceding chapters. Here we have the final confrontation. And what's most interesting to me here is this unexpected perspective that we're given on being a Slytherin. Harry and Ron ask a girl about the Slytherin common room as they're on their way to meet Malfoy, and they get a decidedly snippy reply. Malfoy clearly wants to believe that he's the big bad, but he's being kept out of the loop by his father because he isn't. He isn't the heir of Slytherin. He's pretty much incidental. Now, that's not to say that Draco Malfoy is a good guy. Let's remember that we, we've dealt with him before when he called Hermione a mudblood in the first place. But for him to say that he outright wants Hermione to be killed by the creature from the Chamber of Secrets, that is crossing a line, and we absolutely have to recognize the severity of that. But what I think is perhaps most interesting about this entire sequence is that in a more conventionally plotted novel, in a novel that was supposed to have a feel-good, let's-all-work-together-and-get-along-with-it storyline with it, with a theme that's supposed to inspire unity, we might expect this sequence to bring Ron and Harry to a new empathy for Malfoy, for Crab, for Goyle, for the Slytherin kids in general. We want them to quite literally walk a mile in Slytherin shoes, to see what that is like. But we don't do that. Quite the opposite, in fact. Crab and Goyle are thoroughly unpleasant, and Malfoy, even when given the opportunity, is simply the worst. So we don't arrive at new empathy, or should I say, Harry and Ron don't arrive at new empathy for the Slytherin kids. But I think that I do. I think that we do. When Crab and Goyle are confronted by the Ravenclaw girl in such curt terms, there is a part of me that thinks, well, what is it like to be Slytherin? What is it like to arrive at this school and be sorted into Evil House? It's one thing for Draco Malfoy, but not all of these kids come from great wizarding families. Not all of their fathers presumably had personal connections with he who shall not be named. Does Millicent, Millicent Bustrode's, oh, goodness me, I was choking on that name, does Millicent Bulstrode's father have some kind of connection to Lord Voldemort? Well, maybe. But we don't know for sure. And then Draco Malfoy. We got a hint of this at the beginning of the book, when Harry is listening in on their conversation in Nocturne Alley, and we see for the first time Draco in a subservient position. We see that he, rather than representing his family in all its malevolent and somewhat theatrical glory, he is, in fact, subservient to his father. He is, in fact, impressing no one. And here, I think if you look for it, you see some of that too. The idea that Lucius Malfoy won't tell his son about the Chamber of Secrets, that he won't bring him in on the scheme. And we know ultimately, of course, that Lucius Malfoy has a lot to do with the scheme, with the opening of the chamber. And apparently Draco has been excluded from that conversation too. 
He is told, I don't have it here on the slide, but in this scene, he said that his father's best advice was to keep his head down, to keep his head down. The indignity of being told to stay quiet, just play along, while the more important people take care of things. That must suck for Draco Malfoy. Now, Draco is a horrible, vile child, but we are beginning to see, I think, that he comes from a horrible and vile tradition. And it's not a tradition that he is embodying. He is not his father's representative. He has just been tainted by his family's essence, by their corruption, by their slitherinness. But he still has to pay the price for that. He still has to be here hanging around with Crab and with Goyle. So not to say that Draco Malfoy is a good person, not to say that he is worthy necessarily of our pity. He is at the very least vile and judgmental and prejudiced and hateful, at the very least, if not many, many more things besides. But I do think that we can begin to get a sense of the tragedy of Draco. And in a broader sense, possibly the tragedy of the Slytherin kids. And this, I think, is... I don't necessarily want to get into the, the, the never-ending, unceasing game of trying to psychoanalyze the author, but I feel as though this is an element that leads ultimately to the recalibration of the Great Houses. I think that this is one of those story elements that, that leads us to a better understanding of Slytherin, and in some ways the the removal of Draco Malfoy as the most potent symbol of Slytherin House. I find it an absolutely fascinating and, and subtly complex sequence. At the same time, it is a sequence that can be pretty much cut from the book, because we don't actually accomplish anything. And I should note, too, that at the end of this chapter, Hermione has turned herself into a cat girl, and she is going to spend a couple of weeks in the hospital for really no good reason, except that we don't really have a space for Hermione to take part in Operation Dupe Draco, I suppose. It does sometimes feel as though Hermione is is shuffled out of the way. It would almost have been more effective and arguably more more respectful to Hermione if she could have prepared the polyjuice potion and then gone home to her parents for the holiday. Instead, we see some unintended consequences of a poorly prepared spell. Yeah. Let's look into your comments here. That is the end of the chapter. That is the end of tonight's reading. Are we comparing him to Zuko? <laughs> I don't want to go too far down that road because there are spoilers uh, in pretty much every direction here. Yes. Yes. But that is that is a very interesting point of comparison, sure. Um... <laughs> and the chat is moving quickly. Here we go. Film Stories Code says he's been told his whole life that he's special just because he's a Malfoy, but the reality is he's just another ordinary kid. That's a cognitive dissonance he's unprepared to deal with, right? And that's a cognitive dissonance with which Harry is singularly familiar. He's been told his whole life that he's nothing special at all. He's been told his whole life that he has no value and then learns that, unlike Draco, he really does have an exceptionalism. Which one of those two people do you suppose is more dangerous? Or 
is it a question of soul? Is it a question of, of spirit and, and interior virtue? Would Harry in Draco's position be like Draco? Would Draco in Harry's position be like Harry? The book seems to delight in contrasting the two, in representing Draco as the perfect embodiment of what Slytherin is, and therefore, to some degree, what Harry would be if he were in Slytherin House, if he were... I don't want to say, you know, if he were dominated by that side of his personality, because I don't genuinely think that there is that impulse within Harry. I think that Harry is a better kid than he generally gives himself credit for. He generally worries about things. It's ambition and it's power, and it's obviously the taint of Lord Voldemort that has that has instilled this darkness within him. But I find it an interesting juxtaposition. I'm not sure that there is as much substance there as we might believe there to be, as we might hope there to be. Yeah. Oh, there's a... Okay, there's an excellent comment there that I just scrolled right past. <laughs> yes. Uh, Camille says, it must be rather lonely for him with his two best friends being bricks, both intellectually and affection-wise. Yeah, we see nothing. We see no kind of personal interaction. Here we have our heroes. We have the Hufflepuff heroes. Presumably there are Ravenclaw heroes. They're probably in their tower playing D&D or whatever it is that Ravenclaws do in their downtime. That sounds pretty good, actually. Um, but here for the Slytherin, we, we get no sense of real camaraderie. Draco, even in the context of his Quidditch team, doesn't seem to have the same sense of of camaraderie, of, of belonging that Harry has with his. And that's even recognizing that the role of the Seeker is exceptional even within the microcosm of the Quidditch team. So it's an interesting point. Yes. Good. Wow, this is, this is a really great yeah, this is this is a really great conversation. Oh, and Emma says the delay between the chat and Alistair has gotten so short. I feel like I need to hold my comments a bit to make sure he sees them. I'm really glad that the delay is a little shorter. I thought that it was. That's fantastic. In fact, that is a great opportunity to segue into our conclusion. Since it's now 8.30, I think I should probably be wrapping this thing up. Let's start with... Our announcement for next week. Let me show you this slide. Next week, no spoilers, but we meet Tom Riddle. Chapters 13 and 14, that's next Friday, September 30th at 9 p.m. Eastern. I was going to do it earlier in the day, but I have other commitments next Friday, so I had to push it back into the evening. So it's going to be one of those 9 p.m. Ses uh, sessions. I am going to squeeze in another 2 p.m. session before we're done and probably another 7 p.m. session too. Um, so next week, session five, meet Tom Riddle, chapters 13 and 14. The week after that, there will be no session because I am out of town. So we'll pick up session six the following week. But talking about the delay here on YouTube, let me uh, cancel that slide too. Talking about the delay here on YouTube, I will be at some point within the next, let's say two, let's probably say three weeks, I will be conducting a test of an alternate broadcast platform. I am looking at some options, but basically YouTube is verging on the insufficiently reliable 
for these live sessions. And as I move into future seminars, I would really like to have you guys right here with me. I would really like to delay, to, to cut this delay down to as close to zero as we can possibly get it, because that allows for more interactivity. It allows for more question and answer sessions. It allows for more conversation in general. If I can see you right here in the chat as I'm talking to you and, and we're all just more connected. So I'm going to be looking at some alternate broadcast platforms and I will be running perhaps one, perhaps two small-scale tests within the next few weeks. If you would like to be part of that small-scale test, and if you are close to your computer for, let's say, most of the day, or for, for at least a significant chunk of the day, make sure that you follow me over on Twitter, at PaperBullets, because that is where I will announce it when we're ready to go. So it's no big deal. Don't Don't worry about it. If you like the conversations that we have here on YouTube, don't worry. One of the conditions that I'm attaching to any future broad, broadcast platform is that it is every bit as accessible and usable as YouTube. We're not going to lose any functionality. It's certainly not going to be behind a paywall. It is always, always going to be free for everyone. It is going to be as accessible as we can possibly make it. And the good thing is there are lots of tools out there that are even more accessible than YouTube as a broadcast platform for this kind of seminar. So this is all about generating ever more interactivity and conversation here in the session. So follow me over on Twitter at PaperBullets, P-A-P-E-R-B-U-L-L-E-T-S, and watch for announcements. And if you happen to be near your computer sometime within the next three weeks, maybe we'll hang out and talk about Patronuses for 10 or 15 minutes. We'll, we'll see. I need to put this to the test, particularly because we're going to begin our There and Back Again Tolkien Seminar Series uh, it's looking like January, you guys. It's looking early in the new year. I compiled a... I know that I promised that I would have a first draft of the schedule, and I do have a first draft, but it is not yet publishable. Excuse me, there's something flying around in here. Um, so while I have a first draft, it looks as though the, as advertised, year-long Tolkien seminar series, looking just at The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, is not, in fact, going to be a year-long. It is going to be conservatively more like 18 months. It is probably going to be closer to two years when the whole thing is finished. I hope you're looking forward to discussing Tolkien, you guys. I really am. I can't wait to get into that. So that probably is going to begin in January, and I want to have some new technological uh, platforms in place before we get to that. That, guys, I think is going to do it. If you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you have comments, if you have insights that you want to share, you can get in touch with me via email, via voicemail. I guess that would work too. 252-505-WONK. That's 252-505-9665. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me over on the StoryWonk forum. Get in touch. I love to hear from you all. You are fantastic. And that'll do it. Guys, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I will see you all next Friday, 9 p.m., chapters 13 and 14, and we will get into the mystery of Mr. Tom Riddle. Thanks for joining me. I'll talk to you soon.